Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone Campbell Movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now... Here are your co-hosts. Welcome to another Common Grounds Unity podcast. Glad to have each of you joining back with us again. We're back with Michael Burns, author of the book Escaping the Beast, as well as several other books and other kinds of writings. Um, Michael, as I mentioned last week, is a teacher in the Minneapolis-St. Paul Church of Christ or the Two Cities Church. However, he revealed to us last podcast that he's getting ready to move down to Dallas, uh, Texas, to be with the Dallas Church of Christ there. So that'll be a big move for him and his uh, family. He's married to Macretia, and uh, they have two sons uh, right now living in Roseville, but headed down to Dallas uh, so Michael, uh, good to have you back with us. There's more, by the way, you can hear about Michael in our last podcast. Welcome back. I hope you thanks so much for having me together. It's good to be back. uh, It was a great conversation. Sure. Enjoyed talking about the book and look forward to talking more about it. I want to mention before we, we get underway, um, to learn a little bit more about Michael and his teaching ministry and some of the resources that he offers both for personal study and reading and also curriculums for churches that you might use in your teaching ministry, you can go to michaelburnsteachingministry.com. That's michaelburnsteachingministry.com. So, Michael, last uh, time we were together, we were talking about your book, Escaping the Beast, which for our listeners, if, if you didn't hear the last podcast, you really want to. It gives an introduction to the book but it tackles this question of how do kingdom-minded and kingdom-oriented people, disciples of Christ, engage our culture politically? You, you seem to have two ends of the spectrum. You know, those who stay away from politics altogether and those who jump right in and are loyal to a particular political party and um, talk politics often. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about both ends of the spectrum there. Um, Michael uh, reasons with us in his book toward a path that gets kingdom people engaging in kingdom ways, um, our culture. And at times, uh, that certainly means some engagement with politics. So, Michael, did I sum that up well enough? I think you got it. All right. <laughs> um In your book, chapters 19 and 20, I mentioned this last week, chapters 19 and 20 uh, discusses nine principles of engagement. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book, and then what I'd like to do with you today is just discuss these nine principles with you. We'll try to tackle as many as we can in this podcast, and we'll likely carry over into another podcast uh, this conversation so that we can focus in on each of these. Sound like a good plan? I like it. All right. Um, here, here's the excerpt 
I want to read. Uh, you write, there is a big difference between principles and rules. That thought may have never occurred to you before, but it is quite important as a Christian to know the differences. Rules are rooted externally to the individual. They are easy and convenient because we don't have to think much in response to rules. And then principles are quite different. Principles guide us, but not through force or threat. They're rooted internally and motivate or direct us toward good behavior that applies the heart of the principles to ever-changing situations. Principles are much more difficult to live by, however, because they demand that we apply wisdom, thought, and discernment as to how and when to apply them. They cause us to mature and grow as we utilize them because they demand a great deal from us every time we seek to employ them. So uh, we, we'd like to discuss these nine principles with you and like to start out with the first principle, focus allegiance. Talk to us about that, Michael. Sure. Well, I think that's really the place where it has to start, right? Is what are we allegiant to? And I, I really love there's been some recent work from some scholars from N.T. Wright and Michael Gorman up to Matthew Bates, for example, who's really written about uh, a lot about the idea of understanding our English word faith in the Bible often carries with it a really strong element in, in the first century, the way they used it, of allegiance. Uh, and, and not just something, it's not just something you believe, but it's, are you uh, allegiant to a king or a ruler or a leader? And so, you know, for instance, when you see the baptismal creed in the New Testament church of saying Jesus is Lord, well, that was a, that's a common phrase in the first century, but it was Caesar is Lord. And the word gospel was a word that was associated with Caesar. He would send his heralds out to proclaim the good news about Caesar and what he was doing or whatever. And so when the Christians say Jesus is Lord at their baptism, there's a very heavy implication there that Caesar is not, that we are denouncing our allegiance as Roman citizens to to Rome, to the the power and comfort and safety of Rome, we tend to think of Rome as a uh, as a negative thing, but it really wasn't in the first century world. It was the greatest power that had ever existed. It brought peace through its might. It brought economic prosperity. They it was considered a, a good thing, and yet the early Christians. They didn't become subversive, but they changed their allegiance to this real kingdom, to this real king. And we see that in Acts 17. There's kind of an uproar where the folks are like, they are proclaiming that there is another king. This is what they're doing. Because Rome wouldn't have really had a big problem if there was just a group, a, a religious group of you know, backwater folks going around claiming that, hey, there's this new God in the pantheon and he can save your soul. And when you die, you could go to heaven. Rome wouldn't have really cared about that. But it was the real world, the grasping of the life of the age to come, living 
by a different allegiance, upending the social status games that were played in Rome, you know, and, and levels of honor and status and all of that sort of thing. Christians didn't engage in that. They, they equalized that out. They created a new way to live that ended all those distinctions. They were loyal to Jesus and not Caesar. And so that's what eventually became a threat to Rome. And it's that allegiance to Jesus alone that is really at the heart of that first principle. And what I mean by that is I think we often, in the modern context, we don't examine some of these aspects of life. So in other words, it's it's pretty common if we're thinking about becoming a Christian or somebody studying with us, they'll sit down and, and talk about, hey, have you repented? You know, that kind of thing. We talk about repentance and sin, but it's almost always just individual, personal, moral issues. And what we don't discuss is, well, what about our political beliefs and allegiances? Do those have those, have we submitted those to the kingdom of God? You know, and we have these allegiances politically, economically, ethnically, with our identity, whatever it is that we haven't submitted to the kingship of Jesus. And because they don't get challenged or they don't get examined, we tend to smuggle them in with us through the waters of baptism. And here we are in the church and we don't talk about it much. And then something happens. A a social media giant named Facebook or Twitter is created. And now I can actually see what all the people in the pews next to me think about the world. And oh my goodness, they think that? Are they insane? Are they... Are, mm-hmm. Is there something wrong with them? You know, and then uh, we have 24 hour news channels and news is constantly being bombarded at us. And now we respond to that news. And I, you know, maybe one person was brought up thinking on the right side of the aisle and the other one on the left side of the aisle. And, and we never challenge those allegiances and we brought them into the church with us. And now we can't figure out why we're so divided. And that didn't happen as much in the early church because they were challenged to lay down those allegiances. You have Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. I think the New Testament uses those phrases because they're showing, hey, these were two guys on the opposite ends of the political spectrum that laid those things down to follow Jesus. And it has to start there. And if I can, if I can bring in one more concept here. Kevin, that I don't discuss specifically in the book, and uh, it's it's a thought I've developed since the book came out, but I've coined the term anti-discipling. And I think that's really key here with our allegiances, because, and the way I use that term is is similar to the way John uses the term anti-Christ in his letters, which you know, he's basically saying there are many antichrists. It's it's those, it's counterfeit Christs. It's instead mm-hmm. of Christs, these teachers who take a little bit of kind of the Jesus message, but change it up. And these are the antichrists. And in the same way, we have anti-discipling. Jesus says in Matthew 28, go make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And so 
discipling by nature then, as we see it in the New Testament, is a formational process. It's where believers help one another form to become the image of Christ. We become image bearers in the world and we help each other through teaching, through one-on-one times mentoring, a lot of different ways to be formated into Mm -hmm. the shape of Christ. But there's this anti-discipling that goes on. And and by that, I don't just mean worldly influence, right? I don't just mean, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, we're kind of secular and some things. There, there's a specific way that this happens, and, and it has it has to do with being formed into something. And I think of, uh, for instance, 2 Timothy 3, and he talks about in the last times or the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And the way I've always heard that applied is, yep, that sounds just like our world today, doesn't it? That's that's what our world is. But I don't think that's actually what Paul is warning about here because he says they have a form of godliness but deny its power. He's talking about things that have been brought into the church, mm. mindsets, and things that have been brought in and that are taking root in the church. The, the danger in the New Testament for the church always comes from within. It's not so much from without. The real threat is from within. And I see these formational aspects that get us to see the world, quite frankly, in non-kingdom ways, but have a form of godliness to it. And so we we embrace it within the church. And there's a lot of different ways that happens, but one of the strongest ways that I see it, have, you know, it might happen through tradition or Christian nationalism or some of that, but one of the ways that I see it really strongly happening on a daily basis right now is through news media. And quite frankly, I can tend to tell more about how someone is going to behave in the world or how they're going to view issues based on what news media they tend to believe and trust in rather than whether they're a follower of Jesus or not. Because things like news media, social media, forces like that have become more formational for us in the way we think where we start to then filter how we approach the Bible and following Jesus through how we're being formed by these anti-discipling forces rather than letting the pure king and his kingdom shape how we approach the world. So that's why I say it has to start with really checking our allegiance. And that's typically a painful process. That is an eye-opening statement. I think for a lot of people, it, I, I was well into my faith before I really, you know, grasped hold of this idea that you'll, you'll see in the gospels that it is the gospel of the kingdom, you know, the good news that a new kingdom has come and, you know, Matthew six thirty three seek first the kingdom. Boy, that's a call to this allegiance that you're describing. And it's as if, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is the whole new way of living out the kingdom. There you go. And I remember, I remember growing up, 
uh, we used to teach you don't pray the Lord's Prayer because the kingdom has come. But, uh, <laughs> man, I learned better that, you know, more than just a teaching prayer, it's kind of a theological undergirding for this, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Let, let us, you know, Father, be in that. What, what are some of the ways, Michael, that you kind of, you know, reorient yourself on a regular basis to be sure your allegiances are aligned properly? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. I, I think first it starts with this idea of discipling and anti-discipling. It is really taking self-stock. And I encourage everybody to do this, to say, you know, even to the point of writing down a log, how much anti-discipling do I actually get from the world? Mm. Because we can fool ourselves that, oh, no, I just listen to the news. I'm not, I'm not influenced by it or formulated by it. That, that's fantasy. It, it does formulate us unless we're very, very intentional about it. And I, I, you know, I challenge people, take a log and write down how much you take in social media, news media, you know, all of these other sources versus how much time from other believers or the word of God, are you actually having your worldview in areas of politics and justice and things like that formed by those biblical sources? So that's that's one way is, is really taking stock. I think it's important also to listen to people who think differently than you do, to, to not just assume that, oh, no, I'm not influenced. I'm not biased. I'm not you know, this or that, ask people, ask people around you, but ask people who might irritate you because they have a different perspective uh, than Mm -hmm. you do. I I think that's important. I think for me, uh, of course, reading scripture, but that has to bring in all these other elements because because of the power of anti-discipling, we can be so clouded in our vision, almost like having, you know, colored glasses on where we're, we're now reading the Bible through those lenses. So we have to really, you know, exegete ourselves, examine ourselves mm. and say, am I reading this straightforward or am I explaining certain things away or skipping over certain things or interpreting it in a, in a certain way? And, and then for me, probably the, the final one, and I don't know if this, you know, would track for everybody. But for me, I I really love reading about and from the early Christians, not not just the New Testament itself, but there's, there's a lot of writing from the late first century, second century, third century Christians. And, you know, just being challenged by, they were certainly imperfect followers of Jesus but man, they did a lot of things really well and really amazing and, and challenged themselves in the world and are, are incredibly inspiring. So if I, if I ever need to get worked up a little bit, I go, I go read the early church, uh, some, some of their <laughs> stuff and get charged up again. Anti-discipling, man, you've given me a takeaway. Um, I like your use of that term. Just as we need discipling, we need anti-discipling. Let's move on to the next principle. Um, Talk with us a little bit uh, about the idea behind principle number two, understand the purpose of the kingdom. Yeah, I I think I can sum this one up fairly quickly. 
in that everything we see about how God interacts with human beings in the kingdom itself is it's a choice. We're, we're never forced. The kingdom can't be forced. Uh, and you, you see the church sometimes in church history over 2000 years, sort of losing sight of that is we can, you know, start to go, Oh, well, this will be good for people to live out by God's ways and the ways of the kingdom. But as soon as you force the kingdom on someone, it ceases really to be the kingdom. Because it has to be an embraced allegiance. It has to be God wants us to choose him. He doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't force us into the kingdom. And we've got to be very careful to not do that as well. And I, I think most people would say, well, wait a minute. We don't force anybody to become a Christian. That's not what we're talking about. But that carries out even into as we engage in you know, society and issues of justice and politics and things like that. We can very easily get sucked into, well, let's pass laws. And then that will bring righteousness to people. You know, that'll bring morality, but that brings them no closer to the kingdom. Simply forcing morality through laws, as good as it may seem, and it may do some good for society, it's still not, I think we have to be very clear in this, it's not a strictly kingdom method. It will not bring about the kingdom. And so the kingdom has to be modeled and offered and people invited into it. And so carrying that as a principle, and again, that doesn't clear up every question. Principles never do. In fact, often principles raise more questions than they answer. But that's, that's kind of the concept of that. Very good. Let's talk about justice. Principle number three, stand for justice. Tell us a yes. little bit about that. Well, so this is a lot more controversial, I think, than it should be. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. um, the, the whole idea of justice has become politicized, even outside of the church, but even in the church. And, and now, you know, one of the worst things that can be accusations that can be hurled at another Christian is, well, they're just a social justice guy, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I'm not talking about justice according to the world. I'm not talking about letting the world define justice. And this is another one of those areas where we have those dichotomies where we can be all about justice, but do so from a very progressive worldly perspective and then start chasing after a, a, a form of justice where everybody and everything is equal uh, in outcomes and everything. And that's not necessarily biblical justice. But then we can have the other side where people have, have really started to go, you know, that's not the church's business almost. We're, we're about saving souls. We're not about uh, problems in the world or what have you. But Jesus was very clear. He stood for justice. He said the kingdom is good news for the oppressed and the marginalized. Paul challenges a church in Corinth who he calls them saints. They're Christians. They're, they're doing their thing. And yet he spends a whole entire uh, book of 1 Corinthians challenging them because they're mimicking the culture of injustice in the world and they're bringing it into the church. And so he's like, you can't, you can't do that. And he gives example after example. And so we want, I think, to remember that 
you know, first of all, when the Bible talks about righteousness, and we tend to interpret that word oftentimes in the Bible as a personal moral concept, but the way that's used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, righteousness can be just as easily translated as justice, as covenant faithfulness. It's all kind of the same idea. And so, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, when it says, in Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. What Paul's actually saying there, let's forget what all the theologians have argued for hundreds of years after Paul. But what Paul is really saying is the very simple concept of in Christ, we as his people, we become the reconcilers. We become justice. So the church is God's form of justice, creating a new society where there's not surplus, there's not lack, there's not uh, status levels, there's no slave or free or Jew or Greek. We're not playing those games. There's not marginalized and the powerful. We're creating this new society and showing the world, hey, this is what it looks like to be image bearers. And so in that, we certainly have to address issues of societal injustice that have come into the church. And by doing so, I think that then spills out into the into the world. And we have to be really wise about then how to do that, how to address the issues of the world. And I try to go into that in the book and some of the other later principles. But uh, again, avoiding those extremes of let's not worry about justice or let's go after worldly justice. Let's be the justice of God. That's really what the New Testament calls us to. And the church be a place of justice. Man, we, uh, we, we kind of remove most of the prophets out of Scripture if we have no interest in justice and the justice of God and uh, right. equitable treatment of people and care for those that are marginalized or exploited or the foreigner. So, man, great call. Let's, uh, let's go on to number four, particularly relevant, uh, I think, in our time, and that is mercy triumphs over judgment. A great phrase right out of Scripture. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts here. Yeah, again, I, I think this is one I, I hope it's fairly self-explanatory and, and we can go through it quickly. But the, the reason I included this as a principle is, you know, I think a lot of times we, we have to be realistic about the fact that perception for many people is reality. And I know sometimes people can get a false perception of a person or a group, but you can't just dismiss it all, all the time as people are wrong or, you know, whatever. It's persecution. And when you ask an increasing number of non-Christians, what's your perception of Christians? They start with the word judgmental. You know, condescending, those sorts of things. When you go back again and you read some of the Roman criticisms of the early church in the second century, say a, a writer like Celsus or somebody, they're criticizing the church because they're saying these fools actually believe that they're brothers and sisters of one another and they live that way. And they live with no fear of death. They believe they're going to be resurrected because of this crazy sophist speaker that they follow. 
That, that was a big criticism. They act like family and they're not afraid to die. <laughs> and that's not precisely the same criticisms that you'll hear in the world today. And I think it's because we have forgotten our role, which you, you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount really lays out the way that we're supposed to live. And it's a crazy way of living, right? It's a way that makes no sense if you're trying to be successful from a worldly point of view. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to love your enemies and do some of those things, unless your purpose is to display the kingdom of God and not create a world where we're comfortable, uh, you know, just simply moral, safe, those sorts of things. Because living out the kingdom of God, Jesus is very clear. It's kind of a dangerous way to go, too. It can, it'll get you persecuted being a peacemaker. It, it's a problem. And so we show mercy because we're trying to show people the, the kingdom. And that leads us in a very different way than typical politics will, typical worldview, which is about strength. It's about impressiveness, numbers, power. And Jesus is really clear, like, if you're going to follow me, that's that's the way the Gentiles go. We're not going to use power in that way. That's not one of our weapons. We're going to show mercy. We're going to show love. We're going to, uh, that's the kind of people we're going to be in the world. We're going to show them the kingdom. And I think we've just lost sight of that a lot of times. And we have to step back and really analyze everything we do. That's where 2 Corinthians 10, 2 through 5, I think, is such a key passage where Paul says, take captive every thought. Think about everything we're doing in the world. Is it using the weapons of the world? Is it really displaying the kingdom? Is it showing mercy over judgment? And, and so that's just one of those principal metrics to run through is what, what is this really showing the world? Is it showing judgment or is it showing mercy? Because judgment's God's thing. We don't need to worry about that part. He'll take care of that. We're to show love and mercy. I think a lot of people, when we hear that term being non-judgmental uh, and and showing compassion, rather, and man, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I, I deal with folks in my own congregation and in other places who say, well, well how do we as kingdom people keep our moral compass if our young people are hearing us say, be non-judgmental, what, how would you describe the difference in making judgment, exercising discernment, and being judgmental? Yeah, I think it's a difference between defining yourself by who you are versus defining yourself by what you're against. Hmm. And, and, you know, I think that was passed on to me kind of in growing up in a typical Christian evangelical world that I did. I didn't grow up in any sort of restoration movement or whatever. I grew up in the wider evangelical world. And, but, but I think we're all sort of guilty of that or prone to it is I, I remember hearing a lot of sermons from the pulpit that defined us by what we were against. What, you know, don't do that. This is wrong. The world does that. The world is terrible. The world is lost. They're going to hell. And so that really became our definition as well. You know, the self-identifying is we're the people who don't do those things. 
and that quite frankly led into, uh, for me, a, a mindset of sin management. That's what Christianity mm-hmm. was about. It wasn't about who we are. It wasn't about becoming image bearers. It wasn't about um, living a, a truly different way in the world, laying down our lives and showing this radical way of love and mercy. Uh, so I, I think when we show our kids like, hey, here's here's what we do in the wor- world and here's why, uh, that becomes a beautiful thing. Then it becomes a picture that they they want to emulate, and we can operate out of out of love and compassion and passion for the kingdom rather than out of fear, because so much of that becomes, well, I got to speak out against this because otherwise my kids will think that it's okay, and we become fear driven. Rather, and again, it becomes about sin management rather than about image bearing and showing them, hey, our goal is to become like Jesus, is to follow after Jesus. And and when I'm doing that, a lot of that sin stuff, it, it just falls away because I'm focused on being like Jesus rather than on not being like the world. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Good answer. Appreciate that. I think that's helpful to people listening. It's a it's a question everybody I think is engaging, and we want to be we we don't want to lose our heart for people and become self righteous while, right. while seeking to to be transformed into the image of Christ and live obedient lives. So, oh no, good good stuff. I well, there's it. if I can just interject quickly, I don't think it's a mistake that right after Jesus is laying out this beautiful stuff in the in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, "Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness." The very next thought is do not judge <laughs> because very, that's where we tend to point. go, right? <laughs> yes. Very good point. Good observation there. Let's talk about this fifth principle um, of engagement. I, I'm real curious about this. Love the sound of it. Display solidarity and empathy. Yeah. So uh, again, this is a place where I really encourage people to drop all the things we've been taught from our society, from our culture, uh, of what even the Bible and Jesus is about, and just go back and read the Gospels again. And look at where do you find Jesus? And I was recently, a few months ago, watching this show, uh, The Chosen, right? And they're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And I I don't remember the whole dialogue, but I remember Jesus saying something about, I want to start out the Sermon on the Mount with a map. And one of the disciples is like, a map? And he goes, I think it was Matthew. He was like, a map? And he goes, yeah, because if you want to find me, this is where I'm going to be. With the poor in spirit, with the mourners, with the oppressed. And that is where we find Jesus. Who is Jesus always challenging? The powerful. Who is he standing with? The, the, the marginalized, those who have been cut out. And we see that principle over and over again. Paul says in Romans 12, you know, being part of this kingdom community means being willing to associate with the lowly. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, those without honor in society, we treat with special honor. That's This is what we do. We're, we're raising people up. The slave person is free. The free person is a slave. We're equalizing things. We're, we're standing and showing solidarity with the oppressed. That's, that's really what he means in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says we suffer with those who suffer. And we rejoice with those who are honored. You know, we we take on 
their status in life, especially suffering with those who are being cut out of society. That doesn't just mean I feel bad if my friend, if my friend's aunt died, I feel bad. You know, he's talking about <laughs> we take on the position of marginalized with these people. We we stand with them in solidarity. We fight for them. And and we see that throughout the the gospels, throughout the New Testament. And yet it's it's so easy to lose. And I, I really would encourage people if that's a, if this one is a challenging point for you to just go back and take all of the stuff, like just go back and read the New Testament as though you've never read it and see where Jesus stands, see who he challenges, see who he's standing up for, see what he says in Matthew 25 when he talks about, hey, this is kind of how judgment's going to go. And it's going to be about, did you take care of those who were in need? Did you take care of the foreigner? Because when you do that, you take care of me. And even the call for hospitality in the New Testament, elders must be great at hospitality. That doesn't mean they set a really awesome table when they have guests over. Hospitality meant holistically loving and showing welcome, especially to people who would not typically receive hospitality in their society, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the slaves, the lower status. It's it's really what the New Testament is calling us to be, is to be communities that show hospitality to people who generally don't get it, to the outsiders and the marginalized. Hmm. Michael, this has been a great conversation. Our time's gotten away from us. And man, I hate to cut it off right here, but I want to ask you to come back for our next podcast because I'd like to touch on these other principles. I think this subject is so relevant and so needed, and I hope it, it spawns conversations in our churches and among leadership. So will you join me back here for one more podcast? I would be happy to. All right. Don't want to give the whole content of the book away, and we're not. Uh, you're, you're going to find uh, Michael goes into to greater depth in each of these chapters, and hopefully each of these is just giving you a sense of, of where this book goes and where it'll take you. So, Michael, again, uh, Michael Burns is our guest. Um, he is the author of Escaping the Beast. Again, you can pick it up on Amazon, or you can go to michaelburnsteachingministry.com and find it there. But we're going to pick up this discussion next week. So thanks for being with us, Common Ground Unity folks. Go out and get a cup of coffee with somebody and sit down and start building some relationships in Christ. And let's do more together than we do apart as the people of God. Join us again next week. Michael will be back. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to the Common Ground Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources, and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles, join the Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.